Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very, very much for joining us today. I just got off of a super fun conversation with Stephen Field about his new translation, his new book, The Duke of Zhou Changes, a study and annotated translation of the Zhou This came out with Harasowitz Verlag in 2015. Now, this is a really, really pleasurable book to read, whether or not you are particularly interested in early China or the texts of early China. So the intended audience of this book, and you'll hear a little bit about this in the moments to come, encompasses two very different, perhaps overlapping, but not necessarily so, kind of reader. One is the kind of reader who is a scholarly reader, um, who is interested in the particular history and textuality and texture of the Zhou Yi, right? The Book of Zhou or the Duke of Zhou Changes. But another intended reader is a reader who wants to use this text for the purposes of divination, who might not know anything about early China, but will certainly learn something and learn why it's actually important to know something about the culture, society, politics of the context in which Stephen is arguing um, this text is derived from in order to actually use it for divination purposes. So there's lots of different kinds of readers who are going to be able to do different kinds of things with this text. And I'll add, it's also just a fabulously inspiring text to read through if you are at all interested in um, the kind of uh, the possibilities of thinking with really beautiful and surprising juxtapositions of prose and poetry. So what the book does is it has three parts. The first part of the book give some context for understanding the history and origins of the text. And you'll hear a little um, in the moments to come about why that's actually important. So we talk a little bit in the conversation about some of the early history that informs what you'll read in the actual translations of the hexagrams. But um, we didn't have a chance to talk about some of the other um, really interesting um, texture that Stephen's bringing to the text um, in this introductory section. And that includes a description a detailed description of different forms of divination, including astrology, plastromancy, um, casting milfoil lots, ornithomancy, um, scapulomancy, etc., He also talks about the mythical origins of the text. He talks about um, kinds of diagrams and diagramming that are related to what we'll see in the text and talks about also numbers and numeracy um, in terms of how we understand the nature and the origins of the Bagua. The book also um, early on here talks about the importance of the, the name of the text, what is uh, changing in this idea of changes and what, why is that important, why is that interesting, and also leads us through some of the most important commentaries to the text. So that's part one. Part two of the book 
translates the names, omen statements, and line texts of the 64 hexagrams. And most of our conversation actually focuses on that. So you'll actually hear um, some detailed descriptions of some examples, and it's really fascinating. Part three of the book offers um, concrete, detailed instructions for casting the oracle using milfoil stalks, using coins, and interpreting the reading that results. And so there's a third part of the book that tells you, okay, let's say you're someone who wants to use this text for divination today, right now. How do you go about doing that? Um, And it's a really, really thoughtful, actually, um, set of instructions for doing so. We also talk in the conversation to come about Stephen's work as a translator, as a really accomplished and quite thoughtful translator. But what I want to do before I leave you to that is just give you a very brief sense of what I mean when I say this is a super inspiring book to read through, to flip through, if you're interested in um, the possibilities of, and really the creative and generative possibilities of reading um, kind of poetic, musical, odd juxtaposition. So here, if this is just a random page I uh, flipped to, page 144. This is hexagram 29, Khan, the pit. And I'm just going to read down the column of omens here from 0 to 6, and you'll hear um, Stephen talking about uh, what omens are in the context of this in a moment. But I'm just going to read this through as a text, and you'll see what I mean. There is a capture, pit within a pit. He plunges down the pitfall. The pit has a drop. Bring him here and thump him down. Steep and deep, he plunges down the pitfall. A flask of wine, terrines, a pear, in earthenware, handed through the window, bound. The pit is not filled, though all around is level. Tie him up with braids and cords, throw him into a thorny keep. Okay, so if you were reading this for the purpose of understanding it um, from a scholarly perspective or using it for the purpose of divination, what you would do is work these individual omens into a larger practice of understanding the counsel that came from them and then the fortune that that resulted. And there's lots of apparatus that Stephen's given us to help us do that. But I think even um, from the perspective of just reading something beautiful, even if you just flip through these and read down this, it's just um, completely awesome. And I could just do this for hours and hours, and I won't because I want you to get to the interview itself. So please do, um, if you have a chance, to get your hands on a copy and flip through. All of the hexagrams are inspiring like that in different ways. Um, And I just um, really enjoyed reading through this book. Okay, so with that... Enjoy the I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks very, very much for listening and for the support of the channel um, that that listening constitutes. I'm here today to talk with Stephen Field about his new book, The Duke of Joe Changes. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Stephen. And thanks very much both for writing a really, really cool book and doing a really cool translation for us and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. I appreciate the opportunity and I am very impressed with the interviews I've listened to years before. Well, thank you. So let's create another one that I'm sure will be equally awesome. And let's start at the beginning. Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you come to work on China, China studies specifically? Yeah, well, I'm kind of an old guy. I actually started studying Chinese uh, the year after Richard Nixon went to China. Uh, But I just uh, chose the language as my foreign language requirement for college. Uh, But once I started the language, uh, everything changed. 
uh, when I finally when I graduated with actually a degree in English literature, my best friend, uh, as a graduation present, gave me two books. Uh, one was the, the the complete poetry of Chairman Mao. <laughs> the other one was the James Legg translation of the Book of Changes. Oh wow! And so since I I uh, had a, a summer uh, to to uh, devote to reading, I read both of those books from cover to cover. <laughs> And one of them, I decided that I was going to learn it well enough that I could read it in Chinese someday. Of course, that's the book of changes. So, See, of course, that's the poetry of Chairman Mao, right? I mean, right. inspiring, earth-shattering beauty. Yeah, that's probably a value judgment. <laughs> so let's. So that actually takes us really nicely into um, what I was going to ask you next. But now I'm just going to ask you something before we get to that. Okay. And that is for listeners who may not be familiar um, with your research trajectory, with what brought you here. What are you typically working on when you're not working on translating the Duke of Zhou changes? Sort of what kind of uh, broad research interests brought you to an interest in this text? So my my bachelor's degree was in English literature, and my PhD was in comparative literature. Uh, so my first love is poetry. Uh, so my first book was also a translation. Uh, it was a translation of one of the most difficult poems in the Chinese language. Uh, the poem is called Tian Wen, The Heaven Questions, uh, from the second great poetry anthology, the Chu Ci. And so that poem was actually a part of a, a graduate course, and I did a little bit of it for the course, and the professor said, look, you should really do the whole book. I think I uh, know a publisher. It just so happened it was New Directions in New York. Uh, so what are the best publishers of poetry in the history of America? And so it kind of made my name. Uh, I had always translated. Uh, it's for whatever reason, it's something that has always appealed to me. And so my first and third books have been translations. So that's really uh, how, I'm, how I'm better known. Uh, poetry is still my, my major love. Uh, I am a poet. I, I, have, I don't write a lot of poetry, but I still do. I've never stopped writing poetry since I was a child. Uh, and, of course, uh, Book of Changes has lots of poetry. So. So when you're writing poetry, are you making that available for us? Is that sort of, tell me about how, so now I just want to hear all about this. <laughs> then, we'll come, then we'll get to the book. So in terms of navigating how you think about yourself as a poet, as a translator, as a writer, scholar, um, how, I'm just going to leave this open for you. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so I did write one long poem. It's about 40 pages long that was published in a journal in London. And then uh, that kind of uh, gave me a certain name in certain circles uh, for this reason. It was an attempt to write the Chinese epic. Of course, uh, most people are aware that China doesn't have an epic in the Western sense of the term, yet there's all kinds of uh, epical uh, works, uh, but no epic poem. Uh, so I took the uh, the myth and legend of, of ancient China and kind of weaved it into a long poem. Uh, that poem actually was picked up uh, not too long ago uh, by uh, a uh, the author of uh, this series of books on uh, ecology and religion. 
uh, the, uh, 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 Yale, uh, Yale and Harvard. Uh, this particular book was Taoism and Ecology. And they took that poem as the uh, per, uh, prologue for their, their whole book uh, because it apparently, uh, I actually never would have thought this, uh, uh, gave readers a uh, ecological view of the creation or the origin of the Chinese world. Mm. That's awesome. And hopefully um, what we can do is if you send me some kind of link to that, we can make that available on the for this um, so that listeners can read it as well. So this is fascinating in all kinds of ways. And I already have a sense that I'm going to want to be talking to you for hours and hours. <laughs> so let's get to the book itself. Okay. So the book um, that we're talking about today is The Duke of Zhou Changes, a study and annotated translation of the Zhoui. Now, you've already talked a little bit about what brought you to um, the Book of Changes initially, right? And you said, I'm going to be doing a translation of this. But how did you come to this particular project, deciding to do a translation now at this moment in your life? So can you talk a little bit about how you, you, know, how you came to this project and came to commit to a translation of um, a really fascinating, I think, really, really difficult work? What brought you to the, that decision? Well, this is going to make you uh, laugh. It's, a lot of things make me laugh. It's not surprising. <laughs> I'm not sure what the listeners are going to think about this. Uh, a couple of, of my scholarly friends know this, but it's it's a great revelation. Uh, I have been working on feng shui for, for maybe 15 or 20 years, and so I have a certain name in feng shui circles, uh, both popular and scholarly. Okay, uh, and I was approached at, at one point by uh, an author and a publisher, and asked if I would create a translation of the Book of Changes for the Complete Idiot's Guide. Wow! Which I did. Wow! <laughs> and they said it wasn't idiot enough. <laughs> okay, in other words, it was too difficult for the public. Wow. So I, I actually did that transition over a space of about a year and a half. Uh, and that's what got me started. I, you know, I learned over the years that the, a book of the magnitude of the, of the I Ching is really, it's a lifetime project. And I probably never would have had the guts to really just sit out and do a translation had I not been given this opportunity. Uh, so that actually became kind of the uh, first attempt, and that was like uh, 15 years ago, something like that. Uh, and, and so I just let it sit and gestate for five years, and then I finally went back to it and began to do a scholarly translation. So that's how it got started. So aren't you glad you asked that question? I am so glad that I asked that <laughs> question. I am so glad I asked. So tell us a little bit about um, – and, and I – asking you this not because it's not clear from the book because you talk about this in the book but for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to get their hands and eyes and brain cells on the book um, who's the kind of audience for this book when you imagine someone your ideal reader picking this up and um, and working with it and using it and developing a relationship with it who is that kind of person and what kind of relationship is that right so Although this is not the first translation that attempts to uh, retrieve something like an urtext of, of the Book of Changes, uh, it is one that 
uses that goal as its as its priority. Uh, I I have attempted to, to the best of my ability to not uh, utilize any uh, meanings of vocabulary that are uh, post-Confucian. Uh, so basically, uh, the rule of thumb is just to utilize uh, texts like the, the Shu Jing uh, Book of Odes, uh, uh, the Shang Shu Book of Documents, uh, and that uh, type of text to try to interpret vocabulary in this book. Uh, of course, most translations, I would say the great majority of translations, uh, don't do that. Uh, so, for example, the the, uh, the Han Dynasty Dictionary Shuanjiezi uh, is the basis for a lot of uh, uh, meanings for most translators. But that book didn't come out until 100 AD, and that's you know a thousand years after the book was written. Uh, so the whole point is here: I try to find that Ur text, which is very difficult, and in, and in many cases impossible. And so that's why scholars tend to leave this book alone. Because you have to make some judgments along the line uh, based on either your knowledge or sometimes uh, uh, perhaps even a bit of a guess. Uh, Because uh, the first priority is to uncover the urtex. The second priority is to make this understandable. Now, that, that second priority is sometimes the most difficult uh, and if you look at other trans, other scholarly translations of this book, especially ones that, that attempt to, to cover something like the original text, you will find that uh, many of the passages make no sense at all. In other words, that is not their priority. Their priority is just to translate the, the words of the sentences as literal as possible and then just see what comes out. But since my perceived audience for this book it's not just the scholarly world. It's also the general public. I have to make it understandable. And so I think when the reviews of this book start coming out, that's one thing that will probably be mentioned, is that you actually could sit down like you did, Carla, mm-hmm. and read this book from cover to cover, or at least from hexagram one to hexagram 64, mm-hmm. and find that there are narratives in there. Mm-hmm. And that you actually can pull out a lot uh, of ancient history uh, and and, uh, 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 and and such just by reading those texts. You can't do that with many of the translations of this book. So I guess uh, I have already heard from a lot of the people in, in the, the reading public, uh, especially through Facebook, uh, because there's a there's a as anyone who knows anything about this book knows, uh, this is a cult classic. Right. Uh, especially since since the '60s with uh, Wilhelm's translation into into English. Uh, and so there's a reading public out there. I, I suppose if I had published this uh, with a with a popular press, I, I could have uh, made a lot of money off of it. But that's not the point. It's a scholarly press, and I don't get any royalties at all. <laughs> I, remember, I remember growing up, um, one of the only books I remember in our house, I mean, there were lots of books in our house, but I have a very vivid memory of, along with um, The Silmarillion, and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, my mom kept a copy of what she called the I Ching, I think, right. and sure. had pennies and would tell me about how she would, you know, do things with it. And this is before I knew anything about China or anything like that. Um, so I have a very, I was very, um, I had a connection with that aspect of your translation that was very much, you know, take me back to the basement in my childhood, kind of remember the carpet and thing. So 
there's all kinds of stuff that we need to talk about that you've brought up, right? Um, But what I want to do is just ask you to talk a little bit about something that you just mentioned a little while ago. So you talked about um, one of your goals being recovering the Ur text. Right. So it's not necessarily self-evident that that would necessarily be a goal of a translator of this work, right? So can you say a little bit more about why that is important to you? Sort of why, as a translator and reader and engager with this text, is it important for you to translate in such a way and to read in such a way that you're recovering an or text? Um, like, where does that come from for you? Well, so so the text of the Joey or or aging over the centuries mm-hmm. uh, has accumulated a large body of commentary. Uh, the most important of which are called the Confucian commentaries, uh, which basically came in uh, the Han Dynasty or, or the late Warring States period. These commentaries attempt to to dissect a cosmology or a pseudo uh, a proto-philosophy out of this book since it was so venerated uh, by uh, all, all of the officials of the, of the early Joe dynasty. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, this book was clearly written before the golden age of, of, of Chinese thought. And, and uh, although I'm not a philosopher or a sociologist, uh, I feel sure that that period where where this book originates, uh, you know, a a thousand BC, uh, there there was no philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so if if a book was written at that time, it was not written for what we normally think philosophy is for, uh, self-reflection and such. It was was written for divination. Mm -hmm. So that has to be the priority. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are many, there are many images or omens from that era uh, that diviners would then utilize to represent uh, divinatory contexts or whatever, but you cannot lose sight of the original intent of this book. So that's what I try to do. Uh, now, it's very difficult. Uh, as as I, I mentioned to you before, when we were chatting before the interview began, uh, my, my translation does divide uh, each line of, of the hexagram a judgment or the line text into its component parts based on their function, omen, uh, counsel or injunction and uh, fortune. Uh, there's there's a pretty clear uh, cause and effect relation between those. So uh, once the omen is determined, then some wise counsel tries to interpret it and uh, and give advice to the to the the person uh, seeking guidance. And then if they follow that advice, there will be some fortune, good or bad. Mm-hmm. It's not always easy to find that cause and effect, but I tried my best to do so. Well, it's actually kind of perfect um, to segue in. So um, just a, as a little bit of context for listeners, early in the preface, you take us through a brief history of previous translators and translations of the work. And you talk um, about, as you've just mentioned, the ways that this translation and the kind of work that this translation does importantly differs from what's come before. Now, you just mentioned that one of the innovations here, and I think it's a really important innovation, is is the dividing of these texts 
into the functional components. So maybe this is a good opportunity for listeners who are like, what are you talking about? Functional <laughs> components, Omen. Like, I think that sounds really cool, but like, I don't have the book in front of me. So what the hell? Maybe yeah. this is a good opportunity to perhaps anatomize one of the hexagrams, right? What if we kind of go into an example and use that as a way to um, maybe pull out for listeners what's going on? You know, what are these components? Um, what are they meant to do? And um, you can kind of talk us through how you envision us using one of these. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. So let me give a, a little bit of a uh, preface first awesome. about how these uh, functions uh, perhaps originated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am I am borrowing from the work of probably the greatest American scholar of the aging, Edward Shaughnessy, mm-hmm. at the University of Chicago, who uh, in an article in early China years ago in the 90s uh, tried to utilize the records of of uh, oracle bone divination in the the Zuodran, uh, the commentary uh, of uh, the spring on animals annals uh, to uh, project how the text of the I Ching were derived, and so uh, that that was really my my inspiration. Uh, so, for example, uh, if it were an oracle bone that you're cracking instead of uh, casting the the stalks of the arrow plant. You first ask a question, perhaps. You crack the bone, and then the diviner, by looking at that crack, then however the diviner does it, then comes up with a a line of poetry, an omen statement that perhaps was inspired by that crack, or maybe it was a manual that he had that uh, related to the form of the crack, uh, uh, the structure of the crack, or whatever, we just don't know. Uh, and that probably was the origin of these so-called omens in the, in the Book of Changes. Uh, and then in some of these uh, wonderful records in the Zohadran, uh after the diviner reads the crack and, and, and uh, comes up with this uh, uh, oracular uh, verse, then someone invariably asks, what does that mean? And then someone else from the realm, perhaps it's uh, it's the king, or perhaps it's the mother of the king, uh, will then say, well, that means this. If you do this, this will happen. Okay? And that's really the origin of this council or injunction. Uh, and then in the Zohadran, again, invariably, the story will continue with the result. Did the uh, person divining follow the advice, uh, listen to the counsel, and if so, what happened? And then you have the uh, result of a good or bad fortune. Uh, so that's very likely uh, how the Book of Changes came about, too. Uh, what we don't have, though, is the crack to read. Uh, instead, we all we have these wonderful images. Uh, so this concept of imagery, uh, the word is xiang in, in Chinese, in classical Chinese, which, of course, is the same character for the elephant uh, or the, uh, the ivory of the elephant, which was carved into uh, representations. That's where this idea of image came from. In the Book of Changes, it's that omen text, which, for whatever reason, represents somehow uh, the 
the uh, the moment of divination uh, for the diviner, and then depending on how this this book was actually recorded, someone then will interpret that uh, and then give it uh, some kind of prognostication for fortune. We don't know and probably never will know how this actually happened, but that it did is is almost impossible to deny. And so you can follow some of these uh, throughout the book. Uh, I guess the, the example that is that is most famous is the one that uh, that Ed Shaughnessy mentioned in that, that article from the 90s, from Hexagram 53, uh, which the, the title of the hexagram is Progression. It really shows... Uh, succeeding images of a wild goose uh, moving from from a, a lower to a higher uh, uh, location on on uh, this this property and one of one of the councils uh, from one of those omens uh, mentions something about uh, a husband going to war and also uh, it's time to defend against bandits. Okay, uh, so what is the connection between those two? Uh, well, it's it's pretty well known and poetic imagery in ancient China that uh, that geese mated for life. So if there is a goose flying alone, it means that it's lost its mate, and so that's the connection. Because when the husband goes off to war, he's leaving his mate behind. Okay, so these are the these are the little uh, connections that are there if you can find them, and so that's what I try to do. Uh, this particular uh, hexagram, the fortune that is, that is related to that council is there will be misfortune, which probably means the husband will not come back. Uh, so I've already had some online. Uh, a commentary on my translation uh, by actual diviners, uh, especially in, in Europe. Uh, the Yijing is very widely used for divination in Europe, uh, who have pointed out some of those areas in the book where that cause and effect relationship breaks down. Uh, <laughs> you know, if I had twice the amount of room uh, to, to work with in this book, uh, I would have loved to uh, express um, why I, I could not make that, uh, that work. But that is how it works. Mm-hmm. And this is for listeners who are following along. Um, this is a, hec- a hexagram that begins on page 214 of the book. And this page, I mean, you can really see um, in the, just in the language of this particular, uh, just this page, right, 53, with the omens and the council and the fortune, this poetic sense of the language just emerges out of the page, too. And as we kind of work our way through, not only is the wild goose progressing to high land, the husband goes to war and will not return. The wife is pregnant but will not give birth, right? Now's the time to defend against bandits, and you just said that. They're also eating and drinking, cronk, cronk. And I love onomatopoeia, so I needed to, you know, say that. Perhaps you'll get your roof beams, right, as part of the council. Um, the last council here in the sixth line, its feathers can be used in the dance. So it's just amazing. Even just on one page here, there's just so much. Um, whether you are exploring it as a kind of landscape right here or whether you're actually, um, as the book is 
as you say, right, uh, frequently the book is intended to do, using this for divination. And the third part of the book um, gives really detailed explanations for how one might do that, right? Either um, using milfoil stocks, and there's very detailed um, descriptions for how to do that, how to cast the milfoil, um, or using coins, right? Right. so, yeah, so you've already heard some feedback from people who are starting to do this. And, yes. Okay. So this is one of the things that's really striking to me, too, and I just want to mention this to listeners and then we can kind of move on, is there's I mean, the, the translation and your apparatus here around the translation really takes these divinatory practices very seriously. Um, and really what I mean by that is you even give us a sense of the kinds of questions and the structure of the kinds of questions that will be particularly useful for divining with this text and the kinds of questions that won't be, right? So don't ask yes or no questions. Um, Ask other kinds of questions for which there's a substantive answer and you can work your way through this. And I think that's just, um, I really like that about it. Uh, I really appreciated that aspect of the translation. Right, so so the... the the translation itself, if you just take those hexagram tables, so uh, someone who has the book in front of them would be able to do a thumb through the book and find that every hexagram occupies one whole page in a, a nice big square table. Uh, those hexagram tables translate the original line text, hexagram and line texts. Uh, those are as literal as I can possibly get based on those assumptions or presumptions I made before. Uh, and that's what scholars will be interested in. Mm-hmm. The commentaries that I attach, these commentaries uh, is probably what scholars will have a problem with because that's where I try to interpret. And I interpret, again, based on uh, this this uh, Ur version, a version written by the founder of the Joe dynasty uh, and uh, one of his sons, uh, which is why, of course, I named the book The Duke of Joe Changes. That also will probably uh, irk a few readers in the scholarly world. Uh, I'm certainly making a judgment there. Uh, But those commentaries then try to interpret the text based on the era of the presumed authorship. Uh, so uh, that's what will be most useful to the modern diviner because these texts are so old. I mean, we're talking about a 2,000-year-old, 3,000-year-old text here. Uh, just the text itself would be pretty much indecipherable. Uh, so, so for the modern reader, there, there needs to be some context. So you have the text in the translation and then the context in the uh, commentary. And so, again, that's what these uh, modern diviners from Europe are loving uh, because I'm speaking to them as, as a, as a uh, fellow diviner there, in a sense. Uh, but the, the, the hexagram table is, is clearly from the point of view of the, the modern scholar of Egypt. 
It's really interesting hearing you talking about divining and your interest in divining because you can sort of, you know, thinking back to your initial comments about your work as a poet, right, and the kind of poetry that you've done, at least the, the little um, part of it that you've shared descriptions of with us, it um, it sounds like it's very interested in creation, right, and origin, some sort of time travel. And so it actually makes perfect sense, right, that sort of an interest in div- divination, sort of looking toward possible futures and looking back toward imagined pasts would be part of the same fabric of um, interest that you bring to all these projects. So, yeah, it's pretty cool to think about that. <laughs> now, you've just talked about um, this, uh, the fact that, and you mentioned this in the book, the book accepts the account and, and proceeds from there that King Wen and his son, the Duke of Zhou, were the original authors of the Joey. Right. And one of the really interesting things that the book does in its prefatory or introductory apparatus before we get to um, the hexagram texts is give us a little bit of background for understanding the context that um, this text would have been used in, um, in as an or text, right, um, right, in divinatory context. And this is really interesting because it's not just, and as listeners um, who become readers work through the hexagrams and read through the text, I think it'll become really clear that this isn't just a matter of, oh, this is useful context, and then we'll just proceed from there because historical context is self-evidently useful. It's not that at all. It's that it's really, really important um, and interesting and relevant, right? So let's talk a little bit about um, this early Chinese context and maybe open up some of what you talk about here in the book. (laughs) So it's it's interesting. Uh, There there are a couple of uh, predecessors to the Book of Changes as books of divination. Uh, one called the Guizong. The Guizong, uh, for for years, existed only in fragments. Uh, but a version was found uh, in a, in a uh, tomb uh, maybe 15 years ago, and we finally have an idea of what the predecessor to the Book of Changes looked like. And one thing that is very striking about the difference between these two these two versions of, of uh, divination texts, even though they have the same hexagrams, the same number of hexagrams, pretty much the same hexagram names, the texts are completely different. The texts of the, the predecessor, the Guizong, are full of mythology. Mm. You see all of these mythical uh, gods, demigods, uh, heroes, uh, being referred to as if they were living. In, in the age of that of that divination, but the book of changes is opposite. There's there's very little, or apparently very little, uh, mythology there. Very little uh, magic. Uh, but that's what I say apparently because uh, it's there. It's just hard to find. Uh, and that's again one of the things I've tried to point out. So that introductory section where I I take the the clan. Uh, that eventually founded the Zhou Dynasty and traced them back uh, to their their earliest uh, a clan hero, uh, Hoji Lord Millet, and then follow the the heroes of of the clan uh, in their exodus across uh, Western China and uh, their great wars and battles and such. Is there's of course that's very hard to do. There's so little uh, to to utilize to to create uh, this these these histories, uh, but it's necessary because I think a lot of those uh, uh, 
heroes are referred to in the book. And so that's where you will see uh, in the commentary section me saying uh, perhaps this uh, relates to uh, the exodus of uh, Gomeo when he uh, left uh, and traveled over the mountains to get to uh, the homeland of the Joe. Things like that. Uh, if I had not prefaced the book, then those stories would have uh, no depth whatsoever. Uh, but if someone knows those stories, then they will give so much more uh, uh, depth and value to these these short little narrations that I think uh, are embodied in these hexagram texts. That's right. And so the in um, just to give listeners kind of a little sense of the flavor of this, and then I'd like to um, ask you a question to open it back up again. There's a short history of um, ancient China or the ancient Chinese right at the beginning of the book. And it takes us, I mean, this is not your dry, you know, in 1492 Columbus, <laughs> the ocean blue kind of history at all. We meet um, in, in the context of Shang culture, we meet Zhou Xin, um, who begins, as you uh, tell us here, as this wise prince who turns to self-indulgence and this really visceral kind of violent behavior. I'm um, at one point. He punishes um, a particular individual, Lord Chang, the ruler of the House of Ji, for sighing over some of that violence, right? So I just imagine, you know, he gets punished for sighing over this really violent, like, cut people's limbs off and, like, you right. know, feed their flesh to people. Um, and so this is relevant in part. This is not and, – and I say this just to give listeners a sense of the relevance to the text. This is relevant in part because this Lord Chang, right, who gets punished for sighing over this really graphic violence is supposed to have written the earliest layer of the Joey. So at every point along the way, the story of this, um, these people, these figures that sometimes this mythology, sometimes not right, is really woven into a story of um, the past and the, the possible origins of this text. Um, you also talk about in this part of the text, the early Joe and, and the Duke of Joe who also added lines to the Joey. So I'm not going to ask you to reiterate, right, that like everything that's here in the introduction, that's unreasonable, and listeners will find that here in the book when they get a copy for themselves. Um, but there's a lot in the text that actually, as you've just mentioned, benefits from and depends on some sense of the society and culture of early China, and that includes anything from um, war to marriage, love, human sacrifice. Um, there's a lot of really interesting texture that comes up in the texts of all the hexagrams. So for you, are there any particularly big, important contextual things or small, important contextual things that listeners need to know about this world of early China in order to understand the text and the use of the text for divination today? Is there any, and I'm, I'm not, you know, asking you to give kind of a comprehensive account, but is there anything that you might want to flag for listeners who then um, will get a copy of the book and, and look for themselves? Well, there obviously a, a, a few things of, of great importance. I can mention a couple uh, for one thing, since my priority is to try to recover the the divinatory context uh, uh, of this text, uh, I think, uh, and I'm not alone in this, but I'm the one who will probably popularize this view, I think that there are individual hexagrams that actually depict divining. Uh, 
Uh, so my favorite is uh, a hexagram, which I translate as the Jawbox. Uh, that's hexagram 27. Uh, mm-hmm. No one has really been able to figure out what this means. There's all kinds of versions of it. But if you think of it as using the jawbone as the actual bone used to crack, to derive an, an oracle, then it makes total sense. And with that understanding, if you look at every character in that hexagram, you will find that there actually are some technical words in there that pertain very specifically uh, to cracking bones for divination. And these kind of things have never been pointed out before. Uh, and so I think once, once you, first of all, uh, attempt to recover this meaning from this particular hexagram and then locate this technical language that of course can mean other things too you put it all together and it makes it uh, a pretty clear that that's what that's what the text mean so this particular hexagram actually uh, uh, shows someone it's almost like a couple of diviners uh, talking about the bones they use for divining and so what one diviner says look at my jawbone that's the perfect uh, tool for divination uh, you really should uh, put aside those turtles that you've been using uh, and look and look at my jawbones and and the and this diviner would probably say something like well okay tell me tell me how it works well first you turn this jawbone upside down and then you touch the the firebrand to the crown See, there's a poem there. It's talking about actually divining with this bone. And then it goes on and uh, just continues through the divination ritual. Every one of these then becomes uh, an omen for a council that has a uh, fortune or prognostication based upon it. So I, when I, when I located those technical terms, I actually was able to put myself back into that context as if I were watching these these old diviners there talking about their trade. And there's there's a couple of other hexagrams that do similar things. Uh, another one is, uh, is hexagram 60, uh, which is called uh, uh, Jia. Well, Jia really is, is it just means the, the, a joint of bamboo. Uh, but uh, plants like Yarrow or milfoil uh, have these joints, uh, and these are the tools of the milfoil uh, divination rite. Uh, so this particular uh, text is probably talking about divining by milfoil. Now, rather than what we think of as divination by milfoil, where the stalks are manipulated in order to derive a, a random number, what you see in this particular hexagram is something more like traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, so these nodes of, of milfoil or nodes of some kind of plant uh, have tastes, mm-hmm. and it's and it's well known that that yarrow was was a a, a medicinal a plant. Uh, it's even I think a medicinal plant in uh, Native America, uh, and so bitterness and sweetness then uh, have some uh, context. We're not quite sure what it is, uh, but you have to look at the the hexagram. Uh, as as it is presented uh, to try to determine what that context is, uh, and and there's more. In fact, just by mentioning a TCM, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the one of the most difficult hexagrams in in the entire book, which just about every translator that you will find has a different translation. In fact, when I listened to your your uh, interview with Rich, Rich, Richard Smith Rice, uh, I think he actually mentioned that one himself. <laughs> <laughs> the hexagram is uh, is number fifty two. Gun. Uh, this character gun really is hard. To interpret, uh, and I and, and that I guess that explains why uh, everyone translates it differently. But if you look at all six lines of this hexagram, you will see that every line has a different body part. So you have the back, the feet, the legs, the waist, the belly, the jaw, and it's the same story with this hexagram as with the one about the jaw bones. There is technical information in there that has been hidden all of these years. Uh, and it actually has something to do with uh, kind of mock Sebastian or perhaps even uh, acupuncture or ac- acupressure. Uh, I, I know that some people will think that's that's uh, a bit iconoclastic mentioning TCM in such an ancient text, but you have this technical information there about the fuming of the heart. And so, see, p- people try to translate that as smoking the heart, you know, like so you, 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 uh, you capture a, 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 someone in a battle and you sacrifice them and you smoke their hearts. Well, okay, that makes good sense, but it makes a lot more sense if you translate this gun as a type of obstruction. In fact, the earliest commentary of this book, and this, this uh, unfortunately gets, gets to the post-Confucian uh, uh, Ten Wings, mm-hmm. uh, glosses that character gun as juror to stop. And that actually is what it means. But it's not to stop as if you are involved in some kind of process and you stop doing something. It's stoppage. It's obturation. This is... Anyone familiar with TCM will understand this. It's, it's where the chi in your system gets clogged. Mm-hmm. And so what you have here is each one of these situations is stoppage or obstruction of chi in these particular parts of the body. Okay, so a lot of people will say, no way. You know, that TCM didn't exist back then. Well, are you sure? <laughs> and, and, you know, and we can talk about um, medicine and the engagement between the body and sort of the, the illnesses of the body and, and obstructions in the body without exactly. even needing to call it TCM, right? We can just call it sort of medicine and healing. And I think it's pretty um, interesting and compelling here to read it that way. Yeah. So um, so this is 52. And really also, as we're talking about this, and we're going to get to translation in a moment, so we don't, we don't completely um, leave that aside. But I just want to mention also, like, well, I'll ask you, have you ever done or has anyone ever done with this translation um, any kind of sort of performance or readings? Because if you even if you just read through (laughs) the omens, right, if you even if you just read down any of the columns and like for um, jawbones on 139. I, the mandible, to see for yourself what the mouth has to say. Discard your sacred turtles. Behold my racks of mandibles. Then we have to turn the jawbone upside down. Touch the mandible. Um, the tiger's gaze is piercing its prey so far away. Touch the firebrand. Follow the mandible. I mean, there's something really inspiring and f- just fascinating about this as a text that jumps off the page and asks you to create relationships here. 
So yeah, I could I could see this being the basis of a really fabulous performance of this text, a kind of creative performance. So maybe if you haven't already done that, you might think about doing that because I think it would be amazing. So at one point in my life, I actually uh, decided that I would create a poem for each hexagram (laughs) that was inspired by the texts of the hexagram. Really? Uh, and I have a, I have a few of those, uh, you know, that ever been published. It's you know I've got this large folio of poems that no one has ever seen. Oh, you should you but. should make this. Have you? I don't know if you've. Um, and then we'll get to the translation. But I I recently had a chance to talk with um, Will Buckingham, who's a um, a scholar and a, a writer as well, who wrote a whole cycle of short stories about the Yijing. Wow. Um, uh, so if you haven't, I should just get the two of you in a room and just have <laughs> you write things together. But yeah, make those, those, that would be awesome to see. I can totally see how you would get that from here too. Yeah. Well, so, so that's, that's true. And thank you for, for bringing that up because these, these texts of the hexagram are very, very poetic. Mm-hmm. And of course I really did attempt to, to make these, these lines sing. So when I would translate something, I would read it aloud. That's right. That's, uh, right. that's super clear. Yeah, that's super clear. I mean, that these translations and I'm and that, sorry, I keep uh, harping on this, but it's really <laughs> striking. I mean, these translations, these English renderings are very much the product of somebody who has an eye and an ear for the musicality of language. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, there's not um, there's no doubt about that. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating about reading this. <laughs> OK, so translation we have. I'm going to have to let you go in like 10 minutes. So before that, we should actually talk about translations, since this is something that you um, opened with. And that's very much an important contribution of this. Okay, so you're obviously a really thoughtful and um, extraordinarily experienced translator. So let's just kind of open things up and talk a little bit about that aspect of your craft. And maybe I'll just start um, kind of in general. Are there any moments of or aspects of the text that you found particularly interesting, either because they were especially challenging for you or they were especially inspiring for you or just created problems that were good to chew on from the perspective of your craft as a translator? Well, sure. Uh, there's one particular character that, that appears in three different hexagrams that uh, it, it doesn't get overlooked, but no one seems, most translators don't seem to understand the the importance of that particular character. The character is Ming. It's the it's the uh, the bird, uh, you know, with the the mouth radical. And that character Ming means uh, the uh, chirping of a bird or the uh, uh, the call of a of a of an animal of some kind. Uh, and when you find it in a text this old. The chances are very high that it is indeed an animal that is chirping. But most translators, because the thing that is supposedly chirping is indecipherable, uh, then do not translate it in its literal sense. Uh, and so, uh, for example, uh, uh, one hexagram which I translate as uh, the elephant. Uh, <laughs> Right, right. Uh, 16 on page 107. All right, so this, this character, you, uh, if you look at it, it has the elephant uh, uh, pictograph on the right. 
uh, and then the euphonetic on the left. And in most contexts, that character doesn't mean something like uh, enthusiasm or joy or something like that. And so the translators, the traditional translators like uh, Wilhelm and such, translate it as something like uh, uh, expressions of enthusiasm. So that mean you uh, or proclaiming joy. But uh, I do believe that it means an elephant. Uh, now you, you know, in the in the time, in the era that this book was 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 produced, uh, the Chinese language, of course, was not standardized at all. So there's there's all kinds of instances of of characters uh, losing their meaning, uh, for, the meanings are forgotten, or uh, different variants were used, uh, and so the new variant perhaps uh, had a, a, a different shade of meaning, and so that became the standard meaning, whatever. Uh, that may be what happened here. But if you if you look at it as an elephant, then all the lines make perfect sense. Uh, but you have to think of it in that sense. Uh, so the, the, the first line, the one that uses the Ming, uh, Mingyu then would be a trumpeting elephant. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's a beautiful image. What most people don't know, certainly moderns, uh, is that China... <laughs> Uh, ancient China was covered with elephants. I mean, the elephants came uh, all the way up to the Yellow River. Uh, but especially south of the Yellow River, uh, elephants were used in farming and such. And one of the great uh, 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 sage heroes of, of China, uh, Sage King Shun, uh, supposedly farmed in the wilds with elephants. And so I particularly think this hexagram is about an elephant. And then the subtext is Shun out there using this elephant to farm. And so he has to uh, wall it off with rocks uh, when, it, when it gets uh, belligerent or whatever. Uh, uh, and, and Not all day long. Right. So, <laughs> and you tell me why that is the case. <laughs> that's, that's, but that, the point is, uh, yes, anyone can translate it as elephant. But what I tried to do is supply that subtext of, of Sage King Shun, uh, and there are various records of him uh, when he was when he was discovered by by Sage King Yao out in out in the, the wilderness. He was actually farming, basically breaking out uh, the wilderness using an elephant, which makes perfect sense. Elephants can just tear trees down. Uh, and that last line, elephant in the dark, it's probably putting some kind of blinders on the elephant like you would with, uh, with horses and mules. Hard to say, but it, but it all makes sense. Whereas when you talk about enthusiasm, that's a little harder. I mean, even on that line three where I call it a wistful element, I've actually found uh, a text which talks about uh, you know, the emotional quality of elements, just like we think of our pets as having emotions. Uh, and so I can call it the wistful elephant. I mean, so so that's that's just one example. There are a couple of other examples. Uh, I don't know if we have time here. I can we, mention. We, yeah, take us to at least one other. <laughs> okay, so uh, this other example is hexagram fifteen, uh, which uh, is pronounced uh, Chin. It's the same story. Uh, the second line of this hexagram is Ming Chin. The calling chin. Well, what in the world is chin? The chin with the word radical uh, means uh, modesty. Uh, and, a, and a lot of translators like myself who try to search for this uh, original meaning uh, look for variant characters with that same jin phonetic. So there's one of them with the mouth radical, uh, which is some kind of uh, uh, 
uh, rodent, like a hamster or something like that. Uh, there's another one uh, with the with the the rat radical, uh, which definitely is some kind of rodent. But there's another one with the bird radical, uh, and this goes back to my mention earlier about the kind of hidden mythology in this book. Uh, there's a famous bird called the gin bird, uh, which only had one wing. Uh, and before the gin bird could fly, it had to have a mate. And so they would join and then they could fly with these two wings. And so it's the same story. If you look at the lines with that in mind, first, for example, the first line is just the doubled character. And so, for example, uh, I think Wilhelm translates this one, modesty about his modesty. Again, <laughs> pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty absurd. Uh, but that particular uh, 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 phrase actually appears in a in a in a, a pre-Confucian text where it is used as a gloss on this bird called the the bee now the 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 the, the wedwing bird. Uh, I, that's my translation of of it. Uh, bee now the e is wing. Now, of course, it's bird. The bee is to join, so it's the it's the bird with joined wings, and so this this jin jin or chin chin was a gloss on that, and so it probably means they joined, and and flew off. So I translate it as taking wing because they joined and therefore they had the ability to take wing. And then the line two is the calling wed wing. Line three, uh, the toiling wed wing. Well, it must be pretty difficult. Can you imagine how difficult it is to join those two bodies? And fly off. So it's that's the, the character Lao, uh, meaning toiling. And then uh, uh, line four, very interesting. This character Hui uh, doesn't really appear uh, except in this one instance in in early texts. The earliest gloss on it meant to uh, uh, to split, mm-hmm. and so that's obviously, from my perspective, what it means here. The birds split apart, which means they cannot fly anymore. Uh, now, I'm not going through the, the council and the prognostication, but if you follow all of those, you will see that there are relatable results uh, from what uh, these actions are. So, again, uh, trying to keep my mind in a pre-Confucian worldview, uh, certainly thinking mythically, uh this uh, came about. Now, I, I have learned in the meantime that one other commentator um, made that suggestion, so I'm not certainly not the only one that thinks this, which is which is great. And this one should also know um, that when they open the book and they go to an individual hexagram, like this one on page one that starts on page 104 and goes to 105 and 106, um, there is detailed commentary that you've provided um, to us that explains these readings. So it's not just these boxes where you'll see, you know, taking wing, but you can go to line one and read the explanation for this and see um, the Chinese characters that you're using. And so there's a lot of um, apparatus here that can help uh, readers who are, you know, maybe not using this for divination, but reading to try to understand how you are interpreting this um, to sort of go there with you. Yes. So 
Stephen. There are a million billion things that I would like to ask you. I would love to go through all of these hexagrams. Um, I think it's clear. I think it's totally uh, beautiful and a really wonderful um, contribution to the field. It's also a super pleasurable book to read through. But unfortunately, we've come to our conclusion. Um, so this is, I know, but well, um, hopefully listeners will get a sense. Uh, well, we'll use this as an opportunity to pick up the book for themselves and see all of the wonders in there that we didn't have a chance to talk about. And there are lots. And and so this is my time to ask you, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, um, talk about, or even a flag for listeners? Well, just one very minor thing. Uh, the Chinese text is included for every hexagram. It would have been wonderful if I'd have had room in those hexagram tables uh, to make it uh, all one on one page, but unfortunately there was not enough room for that. Uh, but it's oftentimes just on the opposite page or just a page later. So anyone who knows Chinese can compare the translation uh, with the original Chinese. And this, of course, uh, scholars would, would require. Uh, I wish, and, and it, it, so since this is indeed a scholarly press, I, I, uh, I do give uh, as many references as I possibly can for people to look up uh, uh, different passages that I use to interpret uh, the text. So uh, p- please do realize that uh, this, this book uh, uh, can enhance your scholarship of this text. Definitely. And so now that the translation is out, and congratulations on the book, what are you working on now? What's currently um, animating you and inspiring you? Well, I'm, I'm, I will never cease to to uh, be uh, uh, exhilarated by anything dealing with ancient divination, be it uh, in uh, China or the West. Uh, uh, so I am writing an article currently uh, on uh, fate and Warring States texts, uh, so specifically uh, the Zhuozhuan. Uh, and there is one, one passage that I'm, that I'm, I'm stuck on. Uh, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but it, it's the first passage to put uh, the concept of Xiang image and Shu number together. And, of course, these two terms represent the two earliest forms of divination in China, uh, the image uh, of the crack and the number uh, uh, representing the, the count of the millfold stocks. Uh, so these terms are related in this passage, and I'm trying to understand the relationship. I actually have given this uh, at a conference, uh, and it just went over most people's heads, and so I didn't get a whole lot of uh, feedback on it. Uh, but I'm almost finished with it. I'll be submitting it uh, this year. Great. Well, thanks for taking time out of that to talk with me today. And thank you so much. It's I hope it's completely obvious. It's been a total pleasure. Um, I think the book is awesome. And congratulations. And thank you for making the time. Well, thank you, Carla. Uh, it's been a real joy to talk with you. And I hope I get to meet you someday in the flesh. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.